family of God, they begin to get bitter. And after they begin to get bitter, then they get discouraged, they get discouraged, they start to live in more open rebellion, not caring anymore to even keep up the facade of faithfulness. It's a sad reality, but if you've been in church any length of time, you've seen it. The question I want you to consider is, why is that? What, how do people fall into that trap? Why is it that that happens from time to time? Well, I think very simply, the answer is this, is that whenever an individual believer makes the decision to live for themselves, to seek their own personal pleasure, and as a result... By extension, ignore the greater body, ignore the greater community of believers and the common interest, the mission that God has given to us together of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, well then, that's the downward cycle that takes place. Well, we've been studying 1 Corinthians for a long time and we're coming up to the very end of it here today and what we've seen is that the theme throughout this book is the power that comes in the community of the believers living together as a body and not just taking themselves out as an individual and considering themselves personally and selfishly, but considering the entire body and their decision-making process. And there's power when we do that. If you've been with us for this study, you've seen that throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. And the different chapters are Paul given a lot of solutions and answers and counsel and guidance to all the various problems that they had. But the bottom line that runs through all the problems is too many of the people in the Corinthian church were just selfish. They were just thinking about themselves and their personal gain and their personal pleasure and their personal preference and their personal ideas to the exclusion of remembering that we're all connected, to the exclusion of realizing that we are a community. But realizing that we are a community and living our life together in community, well, that is the key to victory in your Christian life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, don't kid yourself. Life is tough. It's messy. It gets ugly. It's a battlefield from time to time, and that's all because of sin, and we understand that. It's hard for everybody, by the way. It's not just hard for Christians, but it's especially hard for Christians because not only do we deal with a sin-stained world and all kind of selfish, corrupt people trying to get their edge on us, but we also have a particular spiritual enemy whose set mission is to stop us from being effective in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this becomes the battle that we're in we have a mission we got to bring the message of salvation to a lost and dying world but there is a spiritual enemy and he's trying to stop us you've probably heard the expression well we may lose a battle but we're still going to win the war and praise god in jesus christ the war is won amen but let me just tell you you don't have to give in to losing the battle too you can also win the battles of daily life that are before us today you can be victorious in this battle, and you can be victorious in this life. And that's what Jesus talked about in John chapter 10 and verse number 10, where he says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. You can have victory in your daily life as well. But like everything else in life, it's a 
It's based on the fact of whether or not you can keep a proper balance in your life. Proverbs chapter 11 talks about a false balance being an abomination to the Lord. We need to keep a balance in our life. So here we are today, and we have finally arrived at the final message in the study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And when Paul was in Corinth, he taught them there for 18 months. You see that in Acts chapter 18. And, well, we too have been in Corinth for 18 months now. And as Paul closes this letter, he leaves them with some final thoughts. And I've given the title today's message, The Key to Victorious Living is Balance. The key to victorious living is balance. Life throws a lot at you, and you need to know how to act differently in different situations. Sometimes we say it this way, different strokes for different folks. But Paul said it this way, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. You determine what category of person you're dealing with. God tells you how you're supposed to behave. You act differently in different scenarios and different situations. And that's actually fairly clear. Well, we're going to see two main categories as we go through these final verses in this chapter. And if you'll just follow along, I'm going to jump in in verse 13. That's where we left off. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men, be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, and that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you submit yourselves unto such and to every one that helpeth with us and laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge ye them that are such." The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll see what this has to say. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are truly humbled and grateful for the privilege that it's been to dive deeper into this entire book. And although it's taken us a long time to get through it, boy, we've really learned a lot of great things. And as we wrap this whole book up, Lord, with the final uh, message and, and, and admonitions and salutations at the end, Lord, we just ask that you one more time would show up, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us exactly what we need. And if there be brothers and sisters here who are struggling, who are beginning to slide away, who are finding themselves distanced, may they be reinforced in the understanding that if their life is focused on the community, the body, well, things take care of themselves. But if they continue on the path they're on, well, that can be a dangerous path. And Lord, teach us how to behave ourselves properly before different audiences that you have for us. We love you. And we look forward to what you're going to do, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So in this conclusion to this letter, Paul reminds the Corinthians that to be victorious, you have to be able to understand and differentiate two main categories of people. And those would obviously be the saved and the lost. And to know how to behave yourself in each of those circumstances. So our first point is this, that toward the enemy, be a soldier. 
toward the enemy be a soldier. And this is just verse number 13. We're going to spend most of our time right here. It says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Now certainly don't misunderstand me. Without question, all unsaved people are not your enemy. No question about it. But if you'll just remember last week when we saw in verse number 9 of chapter 16, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. Those many adversaries, by the way, are people. They are people who have been, sadly, influenced by the one adversary that we see described for us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Paul, understanding this dynamic, therefore says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You see, toward the enemy, we are to be good soldiers. That's what we're called to be, and that's how we need to behave. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Don't get carried away and overwhelmed with the details of daily life. Live your life to please Jesus Christ who called you to be a soldier. This is the admonition. This is the call. So specifically, Paul gives three characteristics of a soldier for us to apply. And the first one is, letter A in your studies, be on guard. Be on guard. It starts out by saying, watch ye. Watch ye. And so, this is guard duty. A soldier takes his shift to stand on the wall and stand on his post and to watch for the enemy. So what exactly is it, if that's the spiritual application for our lives, that we are to watch for? Well, there's several things. The first thing is, we're to watch for the coming attacks. And primarily, this is what a watchman does. This is what somebody on guard duty does. They are watching the horizon to see if there's some movement or some attack of the enemy or something out there that we need to be aware of. Going back to 1 Peter 5, 8 that we looked at already, it says, be sober, be vigilant. Literally, that means to watch. Be vigilant, be aware, be outward looking. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, and he has bad intentions for you, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I just want to stop here for a second and pause to allow you to consider, and I, and I don't mean to be unkind or, or elementary in this, but I want you to seriously consider whether or not you really believe 1 Peter 5.8. Do, do you really and truly believe that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an actual adversary? Do you believe that his mission is that he's walking about, looking for his next victim as a ravening wolf, as a lion. And he's just looking to seek who's going to be the weak one of the pack, who's going to be the one that he can pounce on, who can be his next meal that he can devour. He's out to devour you, Christian. This is what his mission is. We need to be on guard for that. We need to be watching for the potential coming attack. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. 
Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour that you think not, the Son of Man cometh. In other words, it's connected to the coming of the, of the Lord, but the idea is this. With the analogy of a thief, when a thief comes to break into your house, he comes to break in and to destroy your house and to take your goods, right? Back in John chapter 10 and verse number 10, talking of the devil, it says, The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his job. That's his mission. That's his goal to attack and to bring you down. And he says, man, if you knew when he was coming, well, then you would have been ready. But because you never know when he's coming, you need to watch. You need to watch. You need to be watching to see when he's coming. And watching's important. Because when you see something, well, then you can make adjustments. Then you can make changes. Then you can make wise choices and wise decisions. And Proverbs chapter 2 talks about this. And in fact, listen, you young people and old alike, if you haven't gotten a hold of Proverbs chapter 2 right here, please pay attention. This is really good stuff. Starting in verse 10, When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee, understanding shall keep thee, to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh froward things, who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice to do evil, and delight in the frowardness of the wicked, whose ways are crooked, and they froward in their paths, to deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger with, which flattereth with her words, which forsaketh the guide of her youth, and forgetteth the covenant of her God. There's a lot in that little passage of Scripture right there. We have the evil man, which is really pointing to Satan. And we have the evil or strange woman, which is really pointing towards the religious system that is controlled by Satan to use her words of flattery to deceive somebody who would be simple in their heart and mind, not discerning, not using discretion, to cause them to commit what the Bible calls spiritual fornication by committing and, and following idols rather than the living and the true God. He says, when you see that coming, when wisdom enters into your heart, use discretion. Use discretion. Turn away from that. You know, it's a dangerous thing these days. It seems like more and more young people who name the name of Jesus Christ want to know, how far can I go in my life without falling off the cliff into sin? If this represents sin, how, how close to the edge can I walk and still be okay and not fall? Well, when I was growing up, we learned it a little different. If you don't want to fall, don't walk where it's slippery. Don't walk near the edge. Discretion would say, don't see how close you can get and do this balancing act. Discretion would say, stay far from the edge. Stay far from the edge. I kind of have a little bit of a problem with heights myself. If I'm at high places and our family was on vacation and we were touring and looking at cool stuff and there was one place we got out of the van and it was a cliff, man. I mean, it went down hundreds of feet and they said, you can go up there if you want. And I was like, okay. And I, I got about this close and I, was and I was just like, no, no, no. I'm out. I'm going back to the van. I'm done. It's over. I'm not getting near the edge. People walk too close to the edge. Discretion is the thing that will keep you safe when you see it coming. You need to be on guard, and you need to be on guard and watch for the coming attacks. You need to watch for the coming of the Lord. Now, we saw this a little bit in Matthew 24. It's also in Matthew 25 and other places. Watch, therefore, in Matthew 25, 13. 
For you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. In this context, the idea is the believer is to watch for the ever soon coming of the Lord so that we can prepare for that coming, so that we can be ready. For the Christian, the specific application is that we're not to be looking for the coming of the Antichrist. We're not to be looking for the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem. We're not to be looking for the tribulation. We're to be looking for his glorious appearing, the rapture of the church. That's what we're to be looking for, right? Because it is coming. Why should we be looking for that? Why should we be watching to see what this life is all about and how much closer we're getting to the end? Because when that day comes, with it comes the judgment of our works, the judgment of our faithfulness. And so to the church in Sardis, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says this, Be watchful. Be watchful, church. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. The idea is this, if you're faithful and diligent and watching you're probably going to have a pretty good idea that, well, the timing is, draw, excuse me, is drawing near. The timing is getting ever closer. We need to watch for coming attacks. We need to watch for the coming of the Lord. And, well, similar to the first one, but I wanted to make it its own category, number three. We need to watch for the coming of wolves. We need to watch for the coming of wolves. Paul meets with the elders in the Ephesian church and we might say that this is a little more applicable to those in leadership and pastoral leadership, but, but let's all just take heed. Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, For I know this, Paul said, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also notice, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He's like, you better be watching for those wolves. There's wolves that are going to want to come in among the flock from outside. Oh, but don't just watch outside because there may be some that pop up even among you. Even among you. Now, I'm not trying to make everybody just look over their shoulder. But I'm telling you, it happens. Paul warned them. He said it happens. You better watch out for those wolves. You better watch out because they, like the lion, will try and devour you. So it says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. They watch for your souls. This is the work of a pastor. These are the things that we do for you as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that's unprofitable for you. You see, God has given to the body shepherds to watch the horizon for the wolves, to protect the sheep, and they watch for your souls, and they watch to take care of you. These are things that we're to watch for. See, a good soldier is aware of his surroundings, where he lives, what time it is, what his mission is. 
and how the enemy operates. Because in 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. The Word of God reveals how he acts. So we can see him coming if you're watching. If you're watching. And watching in the Bible is also associated with praying. And that's because a good, good soldier not only has to watch from his post where he's located, but a good soldier has to have constant communication with headquarters. And so we see these things associated with one another. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. 1 Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Because the Lord can see things that you can't see. You're out looking this direction, and if you're in a spirit of prayer also, the Lord can tap you on the shoulder and say, turn around, look behind you. Turn around, look behind you. So we need to be on guard. And then, letter B, we need to be steadfast. It goes on and it says, stand fast in the faith. In other words, don't retreat. Don't retreat. Once you recognize and see the enemy coming... Don't run. Stand. Stand your ground. Ephesians chapter 6, and talking about spiritual warfare, says in verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having the breastplate of righteousness, etc., etc. You can read it yourself. We are to stand. We are in a spiritual warfare, and the devil has his wiles, and he's out there trying to seeking whom he may devour. And we are to be on guard, and we are to watch. And when we see it, don't turn tail and run. Stand. Stand your ground. You know, there's several different ways that we are to stand, and we're going to run through this list fairly quickly, but they're all found in the Scriptures. In this very verse, it says, stand fast. Stand fast. In other words, it's the idea of being steadfast. If you went back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. That's the idea. Stand fast. Don't retreat. Don't run. Unmovable. In fact, verse 58 from chapter 15, with the therefore of always abounding in the work of the Lord, is really described in more detail all through chapter 16 is the description of how you apply verse 58 of chapter 15. Stand fast, don't waver, dig in your heels, hold your ground. Don't give place to the devil. Stand fast. Uh, stand in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand. You stand in the gospel. We stand in the power of the gospel which has transformed our lives and has made us new creatures in Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians chapter 4 says it this way, Therefore, my beloved, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. You're not standing in your own power. You're not standing because you're so courageous and strong. You're standing in the Lord and because of the gospel and its transformation in your life. That's how you can stand fast. Because of who we are in Christ, we can stand against the wiles of the devil. 
So we stand in the gospel. We stand in the Lord. We stand in the faith. We stand in the faith. This is back in verse 13 of our text. It says, stand fast in the faith. In the faith. The faith is the body of truth delivered unto you. The faith is God's word. <laughs> it's the body of truth that's been delivered unto you. Stand fast in the truth on his promises. God promises us victory in our lives. He promises us victory in Jesus Christ. But you have to appropriate that victory for yourself. You have to believe the promises of God, stand on the promises of God, not waver, not fail, not run, not retreat, and make them yours. You do that by faith. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. If you're going to stand, it's going to be because you're only courageous in the gospel. You're courageous in who the Lord is. You're a part of Him and His body. And you know His truth, and you know what He says, and you know the war is won already, and you know that no weapon formed against you will prosper. You know that these things are true, so you can stand. And when you know these things, then understanding and believing God's Word, well, what does it do? It sets you free. It sets you free. And so number four, you stand in liberty. Galatians chapter 5, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Legalism, traditions, that's bondage. That's captivity. That's holding you back. That's keeping you down. That's keeping you from the freedom that allows you to stand in the Lord and for the Lord. And maybe keeping with the theme of everything we've studied in this book, we really land on number five. We stand together. We stand together. I'm not standing alone, and you're not standing alone. We're standing together. We stand in unity. And that's what Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast, notice, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul wanted to see. That's what Paul wanted to hear. He wanted to hear the testimony that the believers stood fast in the faith, in the Lord, in the gospel, in liberty. He wanted to see that they stood together, that they all stood together. It makes it easier when you do it that way, doesn't it? You know what the word is for the mass of soldiers that all stand together? You know what that word is that describes that? It's called a phalanx, a phalanx, P-H-A-L-A-N-X. And we have an artist's rendering of a phalanx for you. Think Braveheart or something like that. So this would be typically a block of soldiers in different cultures, whether it was Greek or Macedonian and, or whatever. It would be about 256 soldiers, but they would be in a block like this. And they would all stand, and the enemies can come, and they wouldn't retreat, and they would have those spears, and if they were shot at, and whether they locked their shields together, and they would march, whatever they would do, they would not retreat because they would stand, and they would stand not alone. They would stand together. And there's a lot more strength in numbers. Can I just tell you that if we stand fast, and if we stand together, and if we stand in the Lord, and if we stand in faith, and if we stand in liberty, 
then we fulfill 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and our labor is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 8 says it this way. I love it. For now, Paul says, we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Paul says, my labor is not in vain if you all continue to stand fast. But if you won't stand fast, I don't know if I didn't waste my time on you. I don't know if I didn't waste my time on you. So we need to be on guard. We need to be steadfast. And let her see. You ready? Be a man. Be a man. Quit you like men. Now there's an older English usage of the word quit. The word quit in this context most certainly does not mean stop. Stop like men stop. No, don't, that's not what it means. Quit you like men means behave yourselves like men. Literally, the word quit means to behave. I mean, even the pagan Philistines knew that back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 9 where they're calling out to their men to fight against Israel, be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that you be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men, and here's the context, and fight. Quit yourselves like men and fight. It's a call to battle. Be valiant. Be strong. Be courageous. Here's the idea. I love 1 Chronicles 19, 13. Be of good courage and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God. And let the Lord do that which is good in his sight. It's kind of like Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. However it works out, I don't know. It's like the Hebrew children with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they go in the fiery furnace, and, and they say, well, you know, I mean, our God is able to save us. We're not going to bow down to your idols. If he doesn't save us, well, okay. But we're going to stand, and you throw us in the fire if you want to. Let us behave ourselves valiantly for our God, and let God do whatever he sees fit. If he sees fit to let us get slaughtered for his glory, okay. If he sees fit to come through triumphantly in an amazing way and we get to witness it, awesome. That'd be great too. It doesn't really matter as long as we're doing what we're supposed to do. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to quit ourselves like men. We're supposed to stand. We're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be on guard. And we're supposed to be ready to fight. This is generally good advice for anybody, especially in these last days in which we live. Can I just tell you? The nation of Israel in the book of Ezekiel was in a terrible state. They were about to go into captivity. They were backslidden. They were unfaithful. And God was looking for some men that would just be men. Follow along as I read Ezekiel 22, 23. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of our prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They've devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things and have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the clean and the unclean. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Her princes... In the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey. We already know how that comparison goes. 
to shed blood and to destroy souls, to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hath not spoken. They're making stuff up in Jesus' name, right? The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. This is God's view of what's going on in Israel. And he says in verse 30, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me, for the land, that I should not destroy it. Some of the saddest words in the Bible. But I found none. I sought for me a man that would take a stand such that I don't have to come and destroy them. I couldn't find one. Couldn't find one. Therefore, verse 31, have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. So God's looking for a few good men who will be men. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. In this day and time in which we live, it's not like we're living in the time of Fox's Book of Martyrs where people literally, in our country anyway, are being slaughtered for their stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a time that's much more deceptive. We live in a day and a time where philosophically everybody's just become lukewarm and nobody's black or white, everybody's just gray and everybody's just in the middle of the road and everything's a compromise and everything's okay and nobody takes a stand for anything anymore. And in such a day and in such a time, God says, I sought for me a man. Can he find one? Can he find one? He's looking for men who will be men, men of God. Men who will be men, men who will lead, men with courage. And if there would be such men, let me tell you something, other people will follow him. And God doesn't have to pour out his wrath. The Old Testament's full of such examples. Why? Because they're dealing with a physical kingdom of heaven. And literally... Men had to fight, like in that phalanx. So we see places like Joshua 1, 6, and 7, Be strong and of a good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Those guys are about to enter the promised land and they're about to fight giants. And God promises victory if they'll be strong and courageous. 1 Kings 2, 1 and 2, Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. David was a warrior. Daniel chapter 10, verse number 19, And said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee. Be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened. And said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. How are we strengthened? We are strengthened when the Lord speaks. We are strengthened in his word. And so in Daniel eleven thirty two, 32, it says, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God, notice, shall be strong, and here it is, and do exploits. And do exploits. What's an exploit? 
It's a heroic act. An exploit is a heroic act. Do you all remember the famous quote by William Carey, the father of modern missions, where he said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Attempt great things for God. Do exploits. Do exploits. That's what he was saying. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. It's a great picture for us today. Even though we live in a time when it's not a physical kingdom of heaven and it's not literal hand-to-hand combat, our kingdom is the kingdom of God and it's a spiritual kingdom, but it's no less real. So we see the same thing in the New Testament as well. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. 2 Timothy 2 Verse number one, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called and hath professed a good profession before many witnesses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, Paul said, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. You nut. No. In reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. Because I'm half crazy. No, why? Because for when I'm weak, then am I strong. Because when you think you have the strength and when you think you can stand, take heed, the Bible says, lest you fall. It's not your strength. So relax. Stand in his strength. You know what that means? It's good news for all y'all. That means y'all can do it. Everybody can do it. You can do it. But come on. Don't be an ostrich, man. Get your head out of the sand and look around and realize where we're living. We are in a real spiritual battle and we are called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. So with the enemy... We need to be soldiers. But thank the Lord, it is not the totality of our existence. It is not 100% of our schedule constantly at fight. That'd be tough. So number two, toward the family, be a supporter. And this is the rest of the text, talking about how we would behave ourselves among one another. So earlier we made the comment, different strokes for different folks, right? So when you're clearly going to battle with the enemy and the individuals that the adversary would use to try and mess up what you're doing for the Lord, well, then you're to stand and you're to be strong and courageous and fight. But toward the family, different strokes. Don't fight with the family. Don't fight with the family. Support the family. Love the family. Encourage the family. Edify the family. Walk with the family. Don't fight with the family. If you fight with the family, the enemy wins. Divide and conquer. When the family of God doesn't fight the enemy that's without, you get lazy, you turn and fight each other. 
And once you start turning against one another and fighting against one another and start nitpicking and arguing and complaining about what somebody else in the family of God is doing that you don't like, well, then what Paul said to the Ephesian elders comes true, doesn't it? Be careful, lest even among yourselves some wolves might rise up. It's actually easier for the devil to destroy the church from within than from without, historically speaking. When the, when the sharp persecution of the devil came against the church in the early Roman Empire, for example, the believers stuck together in the phalanx and they resisted. Yes, many of them were slaughtered, but they resisted and the faith was strong and it propagated. Right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed in the soil for new life. But when the devil gets inside the church and you fight with one another, that's death. You can smell it. There's death. And that's what he wants to do. So toward the family, don't be a fighter. Be a supporter. Be a supporter. God wants us to support one another in our cooperative mission. It's a great co-mission, by the way, against the real enemy. And that's what we see in the rest of the verses. We're not going to take a lot of time. They're fairly intuitive, but I do want to point out three specific ways that we can support the family. The first one is to serve. The first one is to serve. Let all your things be done with charity. Let all your things be done with charity. Now, most certainly, this is a different audience than verse 13. This is a different target for our behavior than verse 13 right? Let all your things be done with charity. So we are to serve the family of God. And a couple of key ways just come from the meaning of the word charity. And we've studied these things in the past, so I'm not going to take a lot of time. But the first one I'll just call emotional support. Emotional support, because back in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, you remember the greatest chapter on the Bible on the subject of love. Oh, wait a minute, the word they use is charity. So charity is a synonym for love in your King James Bible. And it's a great synonym. It gives a lot of understanding to what true biblical love really is. It's not a mistranslation. It gives you more understanding. So charity has an application of love. Emotional support. Emotional support. The idea is this. Show charity toward the family. In other words, get involved personally in the lives of other people. If the totality of your Christianity is to sit in the back row and listen to the sermon and duck out real quick and never talk to anybody and never be involved with anybody and not be a part of small groups and not come to anything else we do and not know anybody, okay, I mean, there's a chair for you. But you're not going to grow and you're not going to be victorious in your life and you're going to struggle. If you're, if you're the kind of Christian who just watches these on YouTube and, and gets, the, gets the Word of God that way, or you watch your favorite TV preacher you know, on TBN, God help you if you do that. But anyway, <laughs> you're not connected to a body, and that, you're not showing charity. You're not personally involved in the building up and the, the support of others in a real, tangible, emotional way. That's how we're to do it. We're to... We're to let all our things be done with charity, right? And in the event that getting involved in the lives of other people brings you to the point where 
Well, you have to speak hard truth to them, which happens from time to time. Well, according to Ephesians 4.15, you can still speak the truth in love. You can speak it in love, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so, man, let's love the body. Let's get involved personally and show the emotional support. Well, the other thing is material support because when we think of charity, we think of giving, and giving was the context of the first two verses of this chapter. We think of charitable giving. If you give to a charity, you're contributing some resource, material resource, to people who haven't earned it. They don't deserve it, but you want to help them. You want to support them. So in other words, in areas of your life where you can't personally be there to help, well, let's help resource others who can be there. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? And the guy was wounded, and he's on the roadside, and all these priests and Levites and people walked past him and left him there, and then here comes this Samaritan, the half-breed Samaritan Jew Gentile, despised of both sides, and the Jews certainly would have looked down their nose prejudicially at that Samaritan, but the Samaritan was a good man, and he saw the fellow wounded there, and what did he do? He, he picked him up and it says that he bound up his wounds and he put him on his donkey and he carried him into the town. He did everything that he could to show tangible, loving, emotional, personal involvement and support of that situation that presented itself to him as he was in the way. And when he got to the town, he had to continue on on his journey, but he still cared for that person that was wounded. So what did he do? He dropped the guy off to the innkeeper and he gave him money. And he said, take care of his bills and make sure he's taken care of, and if there's any other bills that come back uh, on you, just let me know and I'll pay those too. In other words, you do all you can personally while you can, and while you can't, well, I mean, it can't be everywhere all the time, do what you can to resource others to do it. Serve, support the family emotionally, materially. That's what we should do. That's one way that we can support the family of God. The next way, letter B, is to submit. I love this little passage of Scripture from verse 15 to 18. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they've addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that ye submit yourselves unto such. And everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. I'm glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which is lacking on your part they have supplied, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. So Stephanus is clearly an elder in their community because it says that he's the first fruits of Achaia. Achaia is the region in southern Greece where Athens and Corinth are located. In chapter 1 and verse 16, Stephanus is one of a few people that Paul himself personally baptized. Why did Paul personally baptize very few? Well, he only got the ball rolling and there was other guys that took over after that. Because Stephanus was one of the very first converts in the region and Paul was the missionary that showed up, well, Paul baptized him personally. Does that make it any more special? No, it just means that he was the first fruits of Achaia. It, he's been around in Corinth serving the Lord longer than a lot of these other guys. That's who he is. He's one of the first people saved. And apparently he's a proven leader 
because people are to submit themselves unto them. But we know that he's a proven leader because, well, it says that he was a proven servant. And God's leaders are servants. It says that his household, they've addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's a great term. We think about addiction and we think about substance abuse and we think about all the things that people addict themselves to and they're all typically harmful and negative and detrimental to their behavior and, and so we do what we can to reach out to them and to help them and if you've been through any of that or know people who've been through any of that, it's a tough life. You know how it goes. And addiction is a serious, serious thing. And to, get, and to break that, boy, that's a tough thing to break. But you know, there's something, you might want to consider replacing your addiction with a good one. <laughs> There's some things you can be addicted to that are good, like the ministry of the saints. You know, you'll break your evil addictions quicker if you'll just go ahead and become addicted to serving the Lord and the people of God. That'll work for you. It's worked for other people. It'll work for you too. To be addicted is to be totally given over to something. It controls you. It controls you. What better thing to be addicted to? Than ministry. Stephanus proved that he was that kind of a guy by helping Paul's needs, even where the church wasn't ready to help Paul's needs, as we see in verse number 17. The things that were lacking on your part, church, Stephanus, they came and they fulfilled it. Uh, verse 18, he refreshes the spirit of all the believers that are around him. That's who he is. That's the kind of guy that he is. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're a body, we're a community of believers. And as such, in a community, some will lead and others will follow. Who gets to lead? Well, guys like Stephanus, that's who gets to lead. Guys who have proven themselves, whose lives are totally and wholly given over to the service of the body of Christ. I mean, isn't that who you want to lead you anyway? I mean, do you really want to be a part of a group where your leader's kind of like, yeah, I can take it or leave it? I mean, is that, you're going to get behind that? You're going to, you know, that's going to fire you up? You know, everybody wants to sign up. Well, I mean, I'm tired of you being in charge. I want to be in charge. Okay, well, prove yourself to be addicted to the ministry of saints. I'll give you my job. I don't really care. I mean, I'll go do it again somewhere else. I've done it before. I can do it again. I'm not threatening. I'm just saying. I mean, it's just the way it works, man. Prove yourself. Be a leader. We'll, we'll find you a spot. Don't worry about it. Oh, well, I don't want to do that. Well, okay, sorry. Who gets to lead? Guys like Stephanus. That's who gets to lead. That's the kind of people you should lead. Listen, that's what you ought to do. You say, I don't know, man. Stephanus was a nut. Okay, but he was screwed onto the right bolt. says in verse 18 we're to acknowledge such people you see people like that you recognize them you see people like that you take note of those people and it says you're to submit to them you're to submit to them you know if we're going to be victorious in our lives we need to work as a team you know you can't have everybody be a chief and nobody be an indian right i mean somebody's got to be the coach got to have players right i mean you got to you got to play your role we need to submit to god's ordained leaders we need to work as a team. 
We need to learn to keep rank. David's mighty men, 1 Chronicles 12.33, of Zebulun, such as went forth to battle, expert in war, with all instruments of war, 50,000, which could keep rank. They were not of a double heart. And listen, this is just true. If you can't keep rank, you've got a double heart. If you can't keep rank, you're not singularly focused on the marching orders that your great captain has given to you. People who can't submit are of a double heart, and that's dangerous for them. We support the work of the Lord and the family by submitting to God's chosen leaders. And lastly, and this is just the, the wrap-up of, of this letter, is to salute. Salute. <laughs> Verses 19 to 21. We have churches in Asia that salute the church in Corinth. We have Aquila and Priscilla that salute the church in Corinth. All the brethren greet you. Well, that's what salute means. It means to greet. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. The salutation, there it is, of me, Paul, with mine own hand. Salute, salutations, greetings. Very simply, recognize the body. Just recognize the body. We have members of the body of Christ that are not locally a part of this body, but they're a part of our extended family. Greet them. Salute them as well. They saluted you. You do likewise. That's what Paul said to them. Understand that in Christ, you're, you're not an island. You're not all alone. We're a community, and there's power in that community. So Paul says to the Corinthians, they salute you. Now you go do that with one another. And he says specifically, we like to snicker about this, greet you one another with an holy kiss. Okay, well, you know, I ain't doing that. Okay, well, <laughs> just understand that it is, was, and continues to be in many places in the world a common cultural greeting. In most places it will be men kissing men on the cheek, women with women on the cheek. Typically, that's the type of a holy kiss. Why is that put in here? Oh, you, go, you can go out to lunch and laugh about it all you want. Let me tell you what is really hard to do. It's really hard to greet a brother or a sister with a holy kiss if in your heart you're fighting with them. You see, it all comes together with this idea of loving and encouraging and supporting and being connected emotionally and completely and totally in rank and file together in this phalanx for the Lord and with the body. And when you truly care for somebody, you can greet them with a holy kiss. Now, it is not our culture to do that, and I'm not saying that you must begin to do that. It wouldn't be bad if you did. I lived in a culture where they do. Yeah, it was weird at first. You get used to it. You love the men that you work with. You love as a man the other men that stand and sacrifice with you. You love those men. And you embrace them and give them a kiss on the cheek and let them know I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. You're not doing that if you're fighting with them. You're not doing that if you're fighting with them. So Paul concludes the letter basically with verse 22. 
with a warning. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. The heck is that? <laughs> well, that's why I'm here to tell you. Anathema is a transliteration from the Greek language, which literally means accursed. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And literally, contextually means, let him be damned forever in hell. Maranatha comes from the Aramaic, which could mean either our Lord returns, or some say, praise the Lord. So on one hand, you might say, it sounds a little weird. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but there's truth to that. Because at the end of the day, here's the deal. You can say it this way, by the way. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, which will be determined at the moment when he returns, he'll be accursed. He'll be accursed. And if or if not that happens, either way, Praise the Lord, because he's given you the chance. And the way that you get that all taken care of is you make your decisions now. You watch and you see that there's a soon coming of the Lord. You watch and you see that there's a spiritual enemy. You understand that there's a battle and it's real. You understand that there's a devil who's trying to devour your soul. You understand that this is a serious deal. You understand that Jesus Christ provided the victory. You understand that his death, burial, and resurrection in the gospel gives you your freedom. And you put your faith and trust in him now and you secure your spot on the right team. That's what you do. And he closes with the common way that he opens and closes letters. With grace and with peace be unto you. Because it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that offers us these things. And when you enter into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he floods your soul with peace. And that's what it's all about. But the choice is yours, the response is yours, and the time is now. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.